Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. It's round two of the playoffs. Series are getting underway. BetOnline has you covered as the final eight teams compete for basketball's ultimate championship. Head over to their website using the link in the description to this episode to get a 50% welcome bonus on your initial deposit. Use the promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, to get a 50% welcome bonus. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy Podcast, live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it's a podcast, except it is live because we are available on YouTube. Welcome in to everyone on the YouTube audience as well. I hope you all are having a fantabulous day here on this lovely May the 4th be with you. Yes, Star Wars Day. By the way, I recently watched Star Wars for the first time uh, like in the last month, and I watched all six of the original movies. I'd seen seven and eight during the new Star Wars movies. Um, I watched the Rogue One movie, which, damn, that was intense. Um, but yeah, so I got into Star Wars actually in the last couple months. It's the first time I've ever watched Star Wars in my life. So yeah, happy May the 4th be with you. I now understand the references and stuff. So anyways, happy Star Wars day. Hope everyone's doing awesome today. We got a fun show for you. DSD is going to be back in a little bit. We're going to have a conversation about Ben Simmons and football and Bill Belichick and other stuff like that coming up. First place I want to start, and if you're in the YouTube audience, I'm sorry for the delays there. We got to do the shameless plugging of stuff. Let's start with DeAndre Hopkins. DeAndre Hopkins is a news story that should have some sort of relevance because of the player that DeAndre Hopkins is. For people who don't know yet, he got suspended six games for a PED suspension, and it goes back to November, and he put out a statement that he wasn't going to appeal, and he wanted to get to the bottom of things, which is the thing you do when you get caught. But at least his apology statement was more of a, like, sorry, I got caught than it was, uh, I'm baffled by how this is happening because he didn't go through the appeal process, etc., and we've been doing the PED stuff long enough that the, the it's pretty cut and dry with how the PED suspensions get handed down at this point. 
I, I think we've kind of got this down to a near precise science in terms of the moral conundrum of PED use because I don't think that PED suspensions and PED enforcement is something that can actually be accurately done because there's just so many hypocrisies done in the in-between and it's moral conflicting and you're just going to do the best you can and also these sports leagues govern based on public relations. So we're going to talk about the PED stuff on a macro level and connect it to baseball because baseball is the thing that informs a lot of people's um, PED suspensions con- or thoughts on performance enhancing drugs and PED suspensions because baseball spent a decade or 15 years like really in the muck of PEDs with congressional hearings and Balco and people running around parking lots in Miami trying to interview Alex Rodriguez and all that crazy shit that happened with baseball. Like it came to define the sport for a decade and define the tenure of Bud Selig who got inducted in the Hall of Fame when people didn't think he'd get inducted in the Hall of Fame. So anyways, we'll come back to that in a second. But first, just on the DeAndre Hopkins front, similar to how Calvin Ridley got a full year suspension for betting the equivalent of $15 on a parlay. For someone making $10 million a year, it was the equivalent of a $15 parlay for someone making $100,000 a year, which is a lot of money, by the way. $100,000 a year is a lot of money. But basically, Calvin Ridley put down a $15 parlay and got a one-year suspension. In the same way that I understand why the NFL and sports leagues have to do the strict suspensions for PEDs, or or the strict suspensions for gambling, I understand why they do the strict suspensions for PEDs because the illusion of competitive fairness is something that's incredibly valuable to their consumers. When you watch wrestling, wrestling is a sport where people show up for the entertainment instead of the competition. Even if the results are partially rigged, wrestling is more entertainment than athletic competition. And by the way, all these sports leagues manipulate their rules to find the perfect balance between athletic competition and entertainment, which is why DeAndre Hopkins gets a PED suspension and it's six games. They've figured out that six games is the perfect window between suspension and entertain, between like competitive balance and like deterring people from cheating for the spirit of competitive balance, even though it's not actual competitive balance, just the illusion of competitive balance. Six games is the perfect blend between competition and not detracting from the entertainment. And they've kind of figured out that six games is the perfect number. It's been negotiated in multiple collective bargaining agreements. Nobody's changed it. Six games seems to be kind of the compromise that the NFL and the Players Association and their fans, because again, fans can dictate these things with the almighty dollar the same way baseball lost a ton of money when the whole cheating scandal and or not cheating scandal when people started being morally righteous about drugs and peds back in the 2000s and into the 2010s when in 1998 everyone was like yeah we love this mark mcguire sammy sosa we're not going to talk about how both of them are clearly using drugs let's just talk about the amazing numbers and barry bonds hitting 71 homers and all of that stuff so Once people started being morally righteous about baseball and keeping Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire out of the and Roger Clemens out of the Hall of Fame, everyone stopped being so. Everyone was still morally righteous, 
And at least now when it comes to these things, people just accept them and move on. We're not getting on our high horse about PED suspensions. And so what's interesting about DeAndre Hopkins is he gets the suspension. We all move on from it, et cetera, et cetera. We don't really do the public shaming of DeAndre Hopkins for PED suspension because I think we all realized it really doesn't matter. Like, it really doesn't matter the way we think it does. And we've just come to a place where the six-game suspension works well for everyone involved. Whether it's fair or not is probably besides the point. It just works better for everyone else. They have to have strict rules on this because they want the illusion of athletic competition. So I understand why it's the case. It's why the NBA's version of it is like between 41 to 82. Or in the case of Tyreek Evans, it was a three-year suspension for PED use. Like I understand why sports leagues have to have that if they want the illusion of athletic competition because it's good for business. The fact that Remember, the referee scandal in basketball was something that threatened to derail the entire business model. And the the um, the Tenderfoot TV podcast whistleblower, which we talked about back in 2020, which, by the way, I recommend for anyone. It's a really, really good podcast. It was basically like the NBA leaked the Tim Donahue news and negotiated new television contracts with their partners a week before the scandal broke. They wanted to confirm that the dollar values were set in stone, and there may may or may not have been nefariousness behind it. But anyways, like the, the illusion of athletic competition is good for business. So now, in the case of DeAndre Hopkins, he gets his suspension, we move on from it, we make a couple jokes about the fact that he, uh, oh, don't take drugs, kids, and oh, look at this cheater. We don't really publicly shame him, other than the public shaming of him being an anti-vaxxer, which I had forgotten about that. Because he wasn't one of the most vocal anti-vaxxers. He was just one of those people who was quietly an anti-vaxxer, like Jalen Brown for the Boston Celtics. Just like kind of doing his own thing anti-vaxxer, not telling people about it, not making it a big statement. I'd forgotten that DeAndre Hopkins was an anti-vaxxer, so you can make some jokes about that. On the macro level of PED suspensions, I understand why sports leagues do it again, and With the baseball thing, the thing that made me realize over the years is people tried to convince me as a child in the heart of the baseball steroid conversation. I'm not saying DeAndre Hopkins used steroids either. I'm just lumping all performance-enhancing drugs together. They tried to convince me that cheaters are wrong and that they are morally bad people. And that was the thing that we did around Josh Gordon with weed before we stopped having all these dumb conversations about using weed and Stephen A. Smith could stop doing the stay off the weed jokes because society moved on from that dumb statement of being morally righteous around using weed and putting black people in prison in the 1990s and 2000s and 2010s until now it's at least a little bit better in most states or it's actually a lot a bit better in regards to weed. I think we've moved incredibly quickly in my lifetime around destigmatizing weed. And we've stopped making the Josh Gordon jokes and we've stopped making the PED jokes and A-Rod with the syringes and all that stuff. Like we stopped being morally righteous about this stuff. And I think for me personally, baseball had a lot to do with it because I saw as the years went along People felt that Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and Sammy Sosa and Alex Rodriguez deserved some sort of punishment for the steroid usage. 
And they also kind of realized that the, the punishment they didn't want was keep them out of the Hall of Fame altogether. Because the thing that baseball did is they basically absolved themselves of it and then turned to the writers to be moral compasses for baseball to decide whether Pudge Rodriguez, who was listed in Jose Canseco's book, could get in the Hall of Fame, or whether uh, David Ortiz, who was terrible with the Twins and then goes to the Red Sox, adds a bunch of muscle, and all of a sudden is a 40-home run Hall of Famer. Infer what you want to infer from the possibility of that, like, and was connected to the Balco scandal in the case of, uh, of David Ortiz. Like, you can find all of this stuff morally conflicting in every place. And by the way, I'm not judging people for that. It's impossible to not be hypocritical when you're trying to be a moralist. There are going to be conflicts of interest at all turns. Just do the best you can as a moralist. And so I think it's really interesting how we've decided to stop being moral around PEDs because we realized that once we had demanded and pounded our fists on the table for punishing the steroid cheats by not giving them entry to the hall of fame and then it worked and people realized it wasn't what they wanted like everyone was saying how the hell could barry bonds and roger clemens not get into the hall of fame it felt like everyone was pounding their fists on the table for justification and moral righteousness and then they didn't want it anymore because it was all an illusion in the first place. And I think society as a whole has moved on from this from a morally righteous standpoint of individual actors hopefully getting punished. But if you don't get punished, congratulations, you got away with it. This is the same thing that happened with the Astros scandal in baseball was for me, I didn't think the Astros deserved punishment because you needed to punish the players. You granted the players immunity. That's how you figured out the details. Someone needed to be a fall guy because you needed to make a public relations move. And they fired A.J. Hinch and they fired Jeff Lunau. And Alex Cora took the L and Carlos Beltran took the L. It took out three Major League Baseball managers and a Major League Baseball general manager. And that felt unjustified given what the Astros did. What this was was look, we did not enforce this well. This is a chance for change. This is a ch And by the way, baseball two weeks ago said they were moving towards creating a system in which you could um, relay pitches from the catcher and pitcher through communication and little buzzer systems. And I was like, oh, we're finally going to evolve the technology like you should have done back in 2017. I was like, yes opportunity for change and so when it comes to the nfl pursuing an idea of competitive balance in drug policy is totally impossible because there is no agreed upon metric and everyone has their own moral righteousness people will argue that deandre hopkins was a was being punished fairly for this suspension while i may argue at the same time the arizona cardinals are being unfairly punished because DeAndre Hopkins is getting a six-game drug suspension. And there is no correct answer because there is no agreed-upon metric except for the compromise that the NFL and the Players Association, in according to what their customers want, have come to when it comes to policing drugs and policing performance enhancers. And it could be right could be wrong it's it has there's no agreed upon metric and you can never be correct when you're doing moral policing in this situation and from a macro level view this is the same issue people have with the policing system in america is that people are enforcing the laws and they're protecting the blue line or the the blue wall and 
This is all things that are no, that are no agreed upon metrics and, by the way, are rooted in racism and slavery back in the 1800s. And so all of this comes together into a place where it's like, okay, we don't really have a way to fix this system because there is no will to do it. So we're just going to compromise in this place. And the NFL has found a good compromise for everyone involved. Now, whether it's that we just stopped caring about the moral righteousness of PEDs and the suspensions are probably too strong now. Yeah, probably the case. Are drug tests meant to catch people? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It depends how strictly you want to police the drug testing system. And I understand why sports have to do this. And at the same time, maybe they'll come back around with a massive cheating scandal that feels like it's changing the results of sports. At the same time, I just don't think people care that much anymore. And that's a good thing, by the way. It's good that people don't care about morally policing drug policies. They just want the illusion of competitive balance. And they don't moralize the athletes in a way where they're openly critical of DeAndre Hopkins to the point where like I was talking about Patrick Peterson the other day and I forgot that Patrick Peterson got suspended for PEDs at one point it's something that doesn't have to stick to players the way that it's stuck to baseball players in a way that people didn't want people thought they wanted it and then they got it and they didn't want that system they didn't want to attach drug suspensions and being a cheater to someone for their entire careers some people want to do it to the astros and other people don't want to do it to the astros and maybe it's different because it's a cut and dry banging on the trash can thing that was apparently so egregious that the astros are unworthy of redemption because it feels like they may or may not have changed the result of a world series and at the same time like some people want to not put that on the Astros the way I don't want to put that on the Astros and so cheating scandals as a whole I feel like we've gotten better about over the years where we're not threatening to revoke the dollar because of our moral righteousness around sports now if you're going to revoke your dollar from sport make sure you revoke it over racism sexism uh, bigotry and sports leagues not promoting opportunities for other people like real societal issues that matter not weed and not performance enhancing drugs yes you can police it if you want to and weed they've gotten better about that because all of the stigmas have fallen apart around that progress looks like i mean a little bit of progress in the way that they're not going to get rid of ped suspensions altogether i do think they serve a purpose because of the illusion of competitive balance i'm not saying that they shouldn't exist altogether for example like the the doping scandal in russia where the state is injecting people with PEDs and I know that's not exactly the right way to talk about it but like state sponsored doping scandals that's a problem because people feel they're pressured to have to take all these different medications and we talk about the 15 year old in um, the, the Winter Olympics last year who breaks down crying and has all of these different heart medications inside their body as a figure skater like that's why PED suspensions do serve a purpose is to prevent something like that as a deterrent like we don't want that and at the same time if deandre hopkins is going to take a holistic approach and put a banned substance in his body we don't have to shame him as a cheater and we've gotten smarter about that as sports fans as the years have gone along so they do i'm not saying to get rid of them altogether they do serve a purpose i like that the moralizing of athletes who fail performance enhancing drug tests or the moralizing of athletes who smoke weed has finally faded over the years no pun intended on that one and 
talking about bigotry and racism and sexism and all kinds of stuff like that is actually going to be the topic of our next segment here on the podcast. So I was watching the NFL draft on day one because I didn't really get to watch day two or day three of the NFL draft as much as I maybe would in the past. I'm not going to say I wanted to watch it this year, but I didn't watch it as much as I do in the past. I think that life going back to normal and having interests outside of sports and not being the insecure kid who throws himself into watching sports, I think having all of that stuff has changed my perspective around some of this stuff. But And also just becoming a podcaster has changed my perspective on a lot of this stuff. But I was watching the NFL draft, and during one of their breaks, they played a commercial uh, talking about the Trevor Project, which is the NFL, I mean, not the NFLs, but it's a organization supported by the NFL to help support LGBTQ plus people in the NFL and around football. I mean, and it goes beyond football too. It's just a, an LGBTQ organization to prevent suicide and help, I mean, just give resources to LGBTQ people. And I saw that the NFL made a commercial where the first part of it, I thought it was a new commercial too. Apparently they, they made it last year. It was just the first time that I had seen it. And the commercial begins with the statement, football is gay. And the next part is that it flashes a whole bunch of different words after football is. And I'm just going to try and do as many of them as quickly as I can. It goes, football is gay, lesbian, beautiful, queer, life, exciting, culture, transgender, heart, power, tough, bisexual, strong, freedom, American, accepting. And then they just, they kind of, football is everyone and football is everything. And this goes into the corporate centricism that exists in all of these campaigns. The NFL, we've talked about this a ton of times before. The NFL is a billion-dollar corporation. The NFL does not want to offend people. And they made sure of that as they kept going on further because they hit you with, football is gay. And that's the first thing that you see. And it's actually a really powerful statement, at least more than we're giving them credit for. I'm not going to say the NFL is taking a brave and bold stance, the same way that end racism in the end zone, right above an end zone that says Chiefs, is not a major step in the right direction. But we've been accustomed to talking about racism, even people who detract from racism as a whole. You've become accustomed to messages of racism and conversations around racial inequality and Uh, At the very least, the idea of structural racism and financial deficits in the wealth gap or the hiring gap, all these things have at least become accustomed to people where they at least at the bare minimum either acknowledge they exist or have to fight really hard to acknowledge that they don't exist. And so they do the centrist statement after that. And so that's the part where I'm going to detract is you don't have to, after talking about all of this, say football is power, tough, American, freedom. You don't have to hit all those lines one after the other because you're afraid of the pushback of making this commercial. And 
I do think at the same time, while I'm going to make sure to preface on the front end, like corporate centrism is not a strong statement. This is not as good as the NFL could be. And we'll talk about that more in the beginning. And I want to put that out there on the front end because it's not the best they can do. And at the same time, putting at the very beginning of a commercial where you don't know anything about it other than it says football is. And then the first thing you see for three seconds is football is gay. I think is a bigger step than we acknowledge. And maybe this commercial hasn't has, has gone under the radar a bit. I felt like it was a bigger step than I think a lot of people were prepared for. Because I see that and I'm just not prepared for that at all. I'm not prepared for the NFL to have an LGBTQ plus message uh, an LGBTQ plus positive message in one of their, not just their one of their signature events, but during a commercial break uh, in their free sponsorship spot. Because for people who don't know, when the NFL negotiates these deals with uh, television companies, whether it's ESPN or NFL Network or Fox or NBC or CBS, they get a certain number of advertisements for free. It's why the NFL has all those fun Super Bowl commercials where like um, during the 100th anniversary, they have the giant dinner and everybody's like tackling each other because someone because Ninja fumbles the football or whatever it is like the reason those fun commercials exist is because the NFL gets free spots to put their put these commercials in and the fact that they put it during the draft when again, this had been around for a year. They made it during Pride Month last year and I didn't know that it existed until then, and they put it in the middle of day one of the draft was something that I wasn't prepared for. And then after this message where they have all the words go across, football is for everyone, they talk about how the NFL proudly supports the Trevor Project and the statistic that LGBTQ youth with at least one accepting adult have 40% lower risk of attempting suicide, which even for people who are homophobic, and even people who are antagonistic to LGBTQ people, even they who root for football, are go- if, if this message is going to deter you from football altogether, okay, fair enough. The NFL doesn't really want your dollar at a certain point. But this is one where they can calculate and say that even the most strident of people who might be homophobic are at the very least willing to say, I am against people committing suicide i am against people committing suicide the same way people are anti-cancer it's hard to be pro-cancer it's hard to be pro-suicide comedians find ways to do it but comedians are doing it sarcastically i have uh i'm not going to say i haven't constructed a comedy set about being pro-cancer in the past but i can do it because my mom died of cancer so everyone is generally pro not or I'm sorry, anti-suicide. And so even in this statement, they are supporting a, a, an organization that does great work and also is an organization that everyone agrees is a good thing. Even homophobes agree that at a base level, they're probably not pro-suicide. Maybe there are some people who are pro-suicide, but overwhelmingly people are not pro-suicide. They're anti-suicide. And so this is a, a, a corporate centrist statement that I do feel like has a little bit of a shocking factor to it. And where I will build on this more, because the NFL has opened this window of opportunity, even if no one's really talked about it 
in the time since. And maybe I'm behind the curve on this because I haven't heard anyone talk about this commercial. I haven't heard anyone bring it up in the aftermath of the draft. I haven't heard anyone talk about it during football season. The NFL does have that level of influence because they are by far America's largest entertainment vessel. Now, the movie industry as a whole might be worth more. There is no single organization in the entertainment industry that is more wide-reaching than the National Football League. And so the NFL is at the very least committed to the idea of being pro-LGBTQ people, which is something that has changed dramatically in the last decade. We are less than a decade removed from Michael Sam having people within the NFL really, really aggressively push back against the idea of him being on an NFL roster because he was openly gay right before the draft, and it tanked his draft value. And when he went out of the NFL, it was kind of a sad story because he was the pariah of early social media back when we weren't, like, I mean, people are still not accepting to LGBTQ plus people, but at the same time, Michael Sam went through a shit ton, and the NFL was not as supportive as they should have been around that story. They just wanted it to go away instead of embracing the differences of Michael Sam being an openly gay player about to get drafted and the positive media attention that was coming their way. They wanted the positive attention and none of the pushback internally because football was still incredibly homophobic. The the NF I mean uh, I've heard John Amici who's a former basketball player, he was the first openly gay um, player after finishing his basketball career talk about how when he was in the locker room he would hear people say the most egregiously horrible things and we're also coming off of a time where we talked to Chris Cluey a bunch Chris Cluey was essentially his NFL career was cut a couple of years short because he was willing to be outspoken against or uh, being outspoken for gay marriage being legalized and Mike Pfeiffer, the guy who's been the assistant coach now twice, for, or the head coach for the Browns twice when Kevin Stefanski's gotten COVID, that guy was the one who had the let's take all the gays, put them on an island, and nuke it till it glows guy. That was less than a decade ago. And the NFL is at the very least coming around in the same way corporate centricism has forced all of these corporations to at least, at least the front-facing ones, to be supportive of people with different ideologies because now corporate culture is moving towards center left. And so if you're the NFL and you're committed to this cause, which again, this might just be corporate centricism, it's also at least a shock factor of, I was not prepared for the NFL to say football is gay in the first five seconds of a commercial with no setup of any kind it's just a black screen football is what is it going to be gay three seconds across the screen not prepared for that and that was interesting because it is corporate centricism and it's a stronger statement than even i thought corporate centricism would be and it's not strong enough so here's where i will say the nfl if they're committed to this, the things that are more important, and the Trevor Project is a great organization. And by the way, if you want to donate to the Trevor Project, you can go to, let me just make sure I have it correct here, www.thetrevorproject.org if you do want to support that cause, because it is doing good stuff, I think. 
I, I I don't know all the backstory behind it, but I'm pretty sure doing good stuff in the same, like the only reason I put a pause in that is, um, if you're going to support, um, autism awareness, uh, you should not donate to autism speaks because autism speaks has a really, um, bad track record of, the, the ways that they advocate in favor of people with autism, you should not, there are better organizations and they're like in the same way. I don't know all the backstory behind the Trevor project. I haven't done research on it. I assume that you should donate to it. I just, that's the only reason I put the preface in there is like autism speaks as an organization that is takes money to support autism, but they don't do it in a, in a way that actually supports people in the best way possible um, and creates real, it, it creates awareness, but it doesn't create lasting change to benefit the lives of people with autism. And so that's the only thing I preface there. Now back to the NFL. If the NFL is committed to this cause, the two things that are most important for them is create a culture where LGBTQ plus players don't feel pressure to remain in the closet. This is something that is going to fall with time. You still have the toxically masculine environment of the NFL and most sports leagues that most men's sports leagues still have that toxically masculine environment, especially baseball and especially football and basketball too, to a certain extent. I just don't have the same backstory of basketball other than hearing John Amici talk about it and what it was like in the 2000s. I don't know how basketball's changed, but basketball doesn't have an openly gay player either. So it would be safe to assume that basketball doesn't have that same op- that the same way that they, they don't have the culture where LGBTQ plus players feel like they don't have to remain in the closet. I, I remember the former offensive lineman for the Patriots, whose name I'm forgetting now. I want to say it was Brian O'Callaghan, possibly. I can't remember exactly what his name was. Um, Ryan O'Callaghan, sorry. Ryan O'Callaghan was the offensive lineman for the Patriots who came out afterwards after he nearly attempted suicide he came out and has now been an advocate for LGBTQ plus people and gay men in the NFL and he talks about how there are dozens of NFL players who are in the closet and not willing to come out and if you create a culture of acceptance it'll be easier for people to do that. And the NFL and the NBA and M- MLB and NHL and American sports, American male sports leagues are not in a place yet where they've created that culture. So the NFL can be a leader on that front if that's a cause they're committed to. The other thing they can do is hire LGBTQ plus people in entry-level positions and give them real power within teams which are each billion dollar corporations in and of themselves, and the NFL, which is a $75 billion corporation. Giving them power in those spaces, the same way we talked about after, I mean, we still talk about after Brian Flores' lawsuit of putting black head coach or black coaching candidates in entry level jobs and positions of power, the same way there is what we're talking about with LGBTQ plus people in the NFL. If you put people with different backgrounds and different origins and different races and different sexual preferences into positions of power, you're going to have stronger cultures. And a lot of the problems that we talk about with white, straight men, white, straight, cisgender men, all deciding 
uh, you know, having power, when we talk about white power, we talk are also Christian in that way. We can talk about religious minorities as well. If you bring people from different backgrounds together, a lot of the problems that you have will dissipate themselves because you've given different people power and your organizations are going to be stronger. And if the NFL is truly committed to that cause, those are the steps you're going to take is hire LGBTQ plus people both in entry level positions and give opportunities to promote to real positions of power within the NFL and you create the culture where LGBTQ plus players don't feel pressure to remain in the closet. Because as much as society has moved on, sports move slower than society because, I mean, not sports as a whole, women's sports have moved way past this stuff. Women's sports are on the forefront of this with society. And this is also just a gender gap between um, gayness and lesbianism. Be- being gay and being lesbian feel like they're two different movements that move together in one stride but there's more of an acceptance for some reason in society to two women being together than two men and i don't understand why that's the case i think it has to do a lot with the way that masculine people think of the idea of having sex with other men but it can't just be all that i'm sure there are a lot of different reasons behind it and so Male sports move slower than society on these issues. Women's sports have been at the forefront of not just activism for women's rights and black women's rights, but also lesbian women's rights. And they've actually created real social change when we talk about the 2020 election in Georgia. It, it like, and that's, and Maya Moore, we can talk about that and the prison system reform. Like, they're, they legitimately real platforms that are creating real legitimate change and i'm not saying male sports aren't there i'm saying male sports are moving slower in this respect because male sports and and by the way i do think that the way that we've talked about this in male sports has been better so for example carl nazib is no longer on a team right now but when carl nazib came out People didn't turn to him as this is now the advocate for all of gay men across all of sports because it's a figurehead we can point to as, look, the problem has been resolved. The same way people said, we have a black president, racism has been solved. No, it's not not how that works. I thought it was good how people responded to that with Carl Nazem. And at the same time, Carl Nazem hasn't been signed. He's no longer in the NFL, technically. So you can take away the one actively gay player you had in the NFL. And when we talked about Trey McBride, who's the now tight end for the Arizona Cardinals, being raised by two mothers, I thought it was great that we didn't overemphasize that or didn't overdramatize that. And the good reason for that is... This is something that needs to be normalized. We're we're past a point where this is an anomaly. And in fact, the same way we're past a point where interracial marriage is an anomaly. Normalizing it is the next step in this respect. We don't have to overly sell the fact that Trey McBride was raised by two mothers. Just point out the fact, and because it is still unique... And move on. This is the same way people used to point out in the 80s and 90s. Well, this man, this man had a black father and a white mother, and we don't point that out anymore. We've moved past that. It's going to take 20, 30 years to get to that place because we're already starting to see it be normalized. It just takes time, and I feel like it's we're seeing progress by the fact that we didn't overly sell the Trey McBride having two mothers thing. We brought it up. We moved on. We were good about it. We were good about Carl Nazib coming out and not making it like the Michael Sam story where Michael Sam's life got totally altered 
by the fact that he was an openly gay player coming into the NFL draft because everyone because he was the one who broke down the wall a little bit more so that other people could come out later. And if the NFL is committed to real change in this cause, which, again, starts deeper at their corporate culture, those are the things that matter more even than the corporate statement, which, while it was corporate-centrist, again, was still pretty strong. Strong enough that I wanted to talk about it for 20 minutes because the, the steps that are more important than that is that are going to be more valuable than a, a commercial that for five seconds says football is gay and at the end says football is American and football is freedom because we have to do centricism. The NFL is at the very least making some step in that way and hiring LGBTQ plus people in entry-level positions, giving them the chance to get to move up within organizations and giving them real power within teams and league offices, along with creating a culture where LGBTQ plus people don't feel pressured to remain in the closet, are the two steps that are most important for actual social change through the vacuum of men's sports, which have incredible influence. Because again, women's sports have been at the forefront of some of this stuff. Women's sports just don't have the same influence as male sports, unfortunately, at this point in time. So men's sports have that opportunity to create a culture of acceptance for LGBTQ plus people in a in a male sport where they have a where people who are gay, lesbian, transgender, have uh, queer have an opportunity to actually advance within the organization, have an opportunity to achieve real power and real influence over a major entertainment vessel. The NFL has that opportunity to do so. It's not that difficult. Other places have done it. They seem to be, at the very least, committed to corporate centrism when it comes to LGBTQ plus acceptance, inclusion, and promoting them in positions of power. Now we just get to see if they actually want to create the corporate culture that gives real power and real influence and, real and at the bare minimum, accepts those people. And the NFL is not quite there yet. And no male sports league is, is really at that point yet. Let's see if they will actually do the work there and are committed to that cause, because time's going to tell on that. So we are going to chat with our friend DSD again here on the show. If you want some of the basketball talk with DSD, check out uh, Wired Up from Sunday. It was very fun. I saved the last 30 minutes because we kind of go into other stuff afterwards, and it's evergreen topics, so... Ben Simmons' talk can extend here to this uh, this here fine Wednesday. Uh, it doesn't really make sense to go game to game in the NBA playoffs and, and talk about these storylines. Like more of the macro level conversations are going to be held at the end of the series, I assume. And we'll do eulogies for other teams the same way we eulogize the Utah Jazz, who look like they're headed towards a breakup between Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. Again, I'm screaming from the mountaintops. Rudy Gobert for DeAndre Ayton. Perfect swap. Both teams win. The same way I'm screaming from the mountaintops, Harrison Barnes for Duncan Robinson and Omar Yurtsevin, which is just kind of a cap a cap uh, flip situation. But just flip Duncan Robinson for Harrison Barnes. It would be such a perfect flip. Duncan could come to Sacramento. I could be a producer for his podcast. Mwah, it would be just a perfect, perfect situation. So... One of the things 
that I did find interesting that I wanted to touch on is from that Miami Heat-Philadelphia 76ers series. Because at the time of recording this, Miami's up 1-0 right now. Game 2 is tonight. And I don't know what happened in Game 2 at the time of recording. So it's currently 1-0 Miami. Miami beat up on them in the first game of the series. Duncan Robinson, by the way, was a DNP. So I guess we'll have to wait for the Duncan Robinson game at some point and has... Miami gave him the money that they were hoping that they would give Giannis. They gave to Kyle Lowry and Duncan Robinson. But Duncan Robinson had the one magical game against the Hawks and hasn't really showed up since then. Joel Embiid isn't playing for the 76ers. He's been replaced by DeAndre Jordan because the Philadelphia 76ers had to trade Andre Drummond in the trade that got James Harden, which really regret now because they don't have Joel Embiid and they're kind of just looking for any big because Paul Millsap is their next option after DeAndre Jordan. And so they're just really looking around for bigs at this point. And I know it's like, how could you have not had an alternative option for Joel Embiid? Daryl Morey's building out this team and he envisions that Paul Reed, who is basically like the third string center for the Philadelphia 76ers who played at DePaul and was the second-to-last pick in the NBA draft, and was apparently G League MVP in 2021. Like, they thought Paul Reed would be enough for the six minutes that that they didn't have Joel Embiid on the court, because Joel Embiid was going to play 42 to 43 minutes every single game in the playoffs, and everything the Philadelphia 76ers do revolves around Joel Embiid. And it really sucks, because you heard me talk about on... Sunday about how or it was yeah it was Sunday Sunday I talked about how the these eight teams all have a top 15 player on their team and nobody has more than two and it's a really evenly matched second round that's going to be really fun and every team has a chance to win and as long as Philadelphia doesn't have Joel Embiid they don't have a chance to win which is obvious even in a world where they have James Harden who again James Harden for Five years, finished top two in the MVP four times. He is the third greatest player of his generation, only behind Kevin Durant and Stephen Curry. And by the way, the generation I'm talking about is people drafted roughly between 2007 and 2011-12. Like roughly those five years. Players who all entered their physical primes around the time of 2014 2013 guys who roughly entered their physical primes between 2014 and 2017 that's who we're talking about here so like Kevin Durant Steph Curry James Harden Russell Westbrook you could uh who else is in this group I'm trying to think anyways the point still is like Kawhi Leonard's a tweener in this group Damian Lillard's in this group like the point still is that the Philadelphia 76ers lost Joel Embiid and even with James Harden they are basically the Los Angeles Clippers from last year when they took away Kawhi Leonard, which was they were able to beat the Utah Jazz because every year in the playoffs, it seems like the Utah Jazz just don't want to keep playing basketball. Again, I say it, why are the Jazz the way that they are? And if you take away Joel Embiid from the 76ers, it changes everything going on. And maybe by the time you're listening to this, it's announced that Joel Embiid is going to be able to play in game two for the Philadelphia 76ers. The more so, the more likely situation it looks like is that game three is the most likely possibility for Embiid. 
And by the time you get to game three, this thing could be out of hand because the thing the 76ers were banking on is Joel Embiid, guy who finished second in the MVP last year and third in the MVP this year. He's, like James Harden, the third best player of his generation. It's just a generation after Kevin Durant and Steph Curry. This is a generation of Giannis and Jokic and Embiid and Anthony Davis. Joel Embiid could get you a game by single-handedly being Joel Embiid and affecting everything they do on offense and taking away Bam Adebayo defensively. Joel Embiid could get you a game in Miami, and that was going to push the series along in a series where Philadelphia probably should be underdogs because as much as I say the teams who have the stars supersede the teams without the stars, Miami is this weird anomaly exception because Miami has a team that goes five deep and has arguably three of the top 20 players in the NBA, even though it's contentious to argue whether Jimmy Butler is a top 10 player or a top 15 player. It's more semantics. The fact that they have three all-stars on their team, plus Miami might be the best run organization in the NBA right up there with Toronto and arguably San Antonio, although I'd argue San Antonio has worn their welcome out and might have been more Tim Duncan-centric than we like to give them credit for. The best run organization with Miami where they develop Duncan Robinsons and Kendrick Nunns and Max Struces and Gabe Vincents and Caleb Martins and find value where other teams don't, that Philadelphia or that Miami Heat team is as good as Philadelphia and Joel Embiid just isn't the type of player that can impact a series in that way. I still think that they would beat um, Boston and they'd be favored against Philadelphia. I think um, Milwaukee is where I kind of draw the line for the Miami Heat. I think Milwaukee's still a better team than Miami, and I thought Brooklyn would have a fun series if they ever matched up against Miami. But basically, Miami feels like the cream of the crop of the second-round exits, who now, thanks to the Joel Embiid injury, are going to get a run to the conference finals without really ever being tested, which stinks that Embiid happened to get hurt, because I think that series, I would have had no idea what would have happened in a Sixers-Heat series that went seven games, probably. No idea how that was going to end up. And unfortunately, with Joel Embiid's injury, it's it's almost a no contest, and even these two games in a series that's going to be so evenly matched, even these two games going in favor of Miami are probably going to derail the chances of the Philadelphia 76ers even if Embiid's able to come back for the rest of the series and maybe game two ends with James Harden shooting 35 shots and doing the 40 point James Harden thing again I haven't seen it in a while maybe it's there I think the more likely scenario is Miami wins game two go up 2-0 and the Sixers are kind of scrambling from behind with a 70 to 80 percent healthy Joel Embiid who again in the second round of the playoffs wasn't able to go in the first two games, which suggests that he's probably not healthy. But then again, Joel Embiid's that super-duper special player where it just might not matter. The same way that Giannis had his leg looking like a flamingo and then put up a 50-point triple-double a week later. Or Luka Doncic being out for the first three games of the Jazz series, coming back and putting up a 30-point triple-double and 33-10 and 10 in the next two games. So maybe that's the the plateau that Joel Embiid lives in, and him being there will single-handedly change the Sixers' offense. 
I think it just sucks that Philadelphia doesn't get to have Joel Embiid because the, the margin of vi- the margin in this series is so razor thin, and they were already in a position where they might lose even if they have Joel Embiid. And if you take away Joel Embiid for even part of the series, looks like the Miami Heat are probably going to advance without being tested that significantly, which sucks for all of us because it would have been a really fun series. It might still be a really fun series. It just might be a foregone conclusion that Miami wins because Philadelphia can't compete with DeAndre Jordan starting at center and uh, the G League MVP Paul Reed developing behind the bench for Daryl Morey's Sixers or Doc Rivers' Sixers. Doc Rivers might also be trying to get fired because Doc Rivers is like, we're going to play DeAndre Jordan whether you guys like it or not. And that's never a great situation to hear when the coach is being defensive against the media coming off a game where Joel and, uh, DeAndre Jordan was like negative 26 on the floor. Who knows? It, it, I don't I don't know what the situation is for Philadelphia, but everyone just seems unhappy with how this has gone down and Joel Embiid is being injured, kind of derails what could have been a really fun season, and a season they went all in for in the first place, which sucks for Philadelphia, because they have that special player. They have the third greatest player of this generation and the third greatest player of the last generation. That might have been good enough to get them to the conference finals before they lose to Milwaukee. NBA finals, but that's yeah, a sneaky. That's topic for another day. I've done a bunch mm-hmm. of podcasts on the Luca generation of like his injuries have robbed us of a not like a a, a landscape changing moment, but like a LeBron two thousand seven or Kevin Durant two thousand twelve type of run. Because like if Luca stayed healthy last year, they beat the Clippers, they beat the Maverick or they they beat the Jazz in the second round. They probably lose to Phoenix. At least would have been fun to watch Mavericks and Suns in the conference finals more than like watching the Clippers get beat up by the Suns. And then this year they can make a deep run again. It's like, Oh, this is how generations pass onto like the Luca generation. But anyways, like um, when it comes to the, the, um, the Mavericks, at least like they gave Carlisle 10 years and like the loyalty of like, when we're transitioning from Dirk to Luca, we're not going to find a better coach than Carlisle. So we're going to keep mm-hmm. Carlisle as coach like Cleveland LeBron left and six games later, Ty Lue was fired. <laughs> like yeah. it was so weird how that one ended up happening. But um, Ty Lue literally went from champion like doc rivers to the Clippers. I don't know if he's doing a great job with the Clippers or not, but I don't think anyone thinks of Ty Lue as one of the 10 best. I mean, maybe 10, maybe the five best coaches in the NBA right now. Definitely. But, but that's a low bar though. Yeah. I don't think people, I mean, maybe he is. I just don't think people think of Carlisle as one of the top five coach or I'm sorry, as Ty Lue as one of the top five coaches in the NBA. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Like, well, but yeah, but the problem is there's a lot of new coaches too. So like things like, um, you know, like uh, the guy from uh, Memphis, uh, uh, you know, Boston's coach, you know, and then there's also some awful coaches. And obviously, you know, you got guys like uh, uh, the Suns coach, uh, Monty, Monty, um, Monty Williams. Uh, yeah, Monty. Thank you. Monty Williams. He, he's, he's a great coach. Like, you know, but the thing is that I think with coaching in the NBA is if you don't have good players, your team's going to be bad. So mm-hmm. like I'm not, uh, I'm Greg, Popovich, Williams, uh, Greg Popovich, Greg Popovich. Yeah, well, but he's he's a he's a true unicorn, though. Uh, 
I've, I've talked about this, and we just did the Kawhi Leonard thing. Like, I think just like we're not ready to talk about how the Warriors effed up the Wiseman Lamelo pick, I don't think we're ready to talk about how Greg Popovich, the game passed him by five years ago, and they alienated no, Kawhi definitely. Leonard. And but but it's the same thing up. with the same thing with Bill Belichick, though. Like, it's like 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 I'm I don't think people are ready for that conversation. I I really think that the game passed him by. I really do. <sighs> I mean, I don't know about that because I've seen the Patriots take a bunch of scrubs and make them a top five defense last year. Like that's yeah, one but where, like, but 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 on paper they were a top five. But that team, oh, dude, I, I, just, I disagree, I'm just dude. Like I don't, I don't think they were that great on defense last year, and they just a massively overachieved. Yeah, I, well, I know I they think, signed I, Judon, I, and I, I know they they did all the that. Problem, it's just, yeah, the problem with the Patriots specifically is that Coach Belichick gets lumped in what GM Belichick in a lot of people's minds and specifically mine and GM Belichick. I am just like, so out on, I GM really Belichick am. has been not quite the worst. He's been one of the worst non um, like non the teams that tank. We I actually have the data on this. If you'd like it. Sure. Um, I look, we did this game a few weeks back. Let's see if I can find it. So uh, it's the list of franchises. So this is since 2010. I had to add it. So 2010 through 2020, if you had a pro bowler in 2021, I gave you like a bonus point type of thing for getting a pro bowler as a rookie. I'm um, not sure. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. So basically it's like from 2010 to 2020, it's total draft picks divided by number of pro bowlers drafted to the team. Uh, the Patriots were fourth worst uh, on this data pool. Which part of it is nice. just they have a lot of draft picks at the bottom of the draft too, and that's not the only sign of good drafting is drafting Pro Bowlers. Like it's not the only sign of a great drafter, but Patriots aren't good at picking like really great players in the draft. No, it's 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 awful, man. <laughs> do you think you could? Do you think I'm you just... could guess? Uh, do you think you could guess who number one is? On this, so number one and number two are like way ahead of everyone else. Do you think you know who number one and number two are in terms of so draft pro bowlers? So, so in the um, just the team though, right now, I, I yeah. don't know the GMs. Okay. Yeah, as a um, as a team. So from 2010 to 2020, two teams were just so far ahead of. So basically, it's percentages. The number one is 19 percent, number two is 18 percent, and then number three is like. 14%. So like two is teams it just, are just, is it just, is it, is it just uh, first round or is it, or uh, it's or any all. draft pick, any okay. draft pick that ended up becoming a pro bowler one right, time well, in so their career. Oh, the uh, sorry. You, also, if you, if you draft someone, they leave and then become a pro bowler. That doesn't count. It doesn't count if they sign somewhere so, else and become a pro. So bowler. the chiefs, the chiefs are, they, they gotta be chiefs, warm, are, right? chiefs are number one. Yeah. Um, and then, Uh, I want to say, I mean, so like this one's kind of a sneaky one, but I want to say the Steelers, but don't, don't, don't say yes or no on it yet. Let me just think of it for a second. Cause the Steelers always, they always get like sneaky good guys. Maybe, maybe like not on a, on a overall, um, um, let me think of the NFC just really quick. Um, who's really good at drafting. Uh, I mean, the Chiefs are so obvious, but mm -hmm. fun fact, this team that's second to them actually it? has more pro bowlers drafted than them. It, they just have the more Bills? draft picks also. Huh? Is it the Bills? 
It is not the Buffalo Bills. Bills are actually kind of in the middle because they got dragged down by some of those Rex Ryan and yeah, <laughs> Doug yeah. Marone years. Yeah, I was just thinking of like the more more recent years. Who is it? It is the Dallas Cowboys. I am kind of stunned to hear that, but I guess I guess overall it makes sense because they have high level guys. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, Dallas Cowboys have drafted 16 Pro Bowlers since 2010. It is more than any other franchise in the NFL. Wow. Steelers, by the way, Steelers were tied for fifth. Um, they were tied yeah, they, with they, Atlanta. They're good at drafted. Mm-hmm. They have, they, for, especially for like, like, like they're like skill position guys. They, they do, they always get them. It's wild. Yeah. I mean, so again, we don't know any of the draft picks at the time we're recording, but do you get interested by the NFL draft at all? Yeah. I mean, okay. I, I'm not, I'm not like into it, like, you know, like, crazy crazy into it but like i definitely like follow it for sure okay i mean I, I some people go different ways on this like i i last year we all got a little too crazy with the nfl draft yeah um, yeah I, and, i'm not i'm not like that like even last year like i guess in, in theory i just like we'll just watch it i'm gonna watch it for sure and i and i kind of keep up with it but like end of the day like i don't really know anything about these players and until like you know like seeing especially play, this but, year Especially this year. There's yeah, going to yeah. be stars in this draft class. We just don't know who they are right now. Yeah. Like the first, like the first five, six picks, like I literally, you could just throw it out. I, I don't know. I mean, probably the kid from Michigan, and Baylor. And, but um, yeah, there's a, a, a bunch of those Georgia guys are going to be good too. Because mm-hmm. that Georgia defense was ridiculous. Yeah. But the most, the most I've ever seen of players like from the same position group drafted in one round was um, 2019. There were three Clemson guys drafted in the first round who were like, uh, so it was Cleland Furl, it was Dexter Lawrence, and it was, um, what's the, who's the guy on the Dolphins who does the splits? Um, uh, Christian, oh, split. oh, Christian Wilkins. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, he's like, he's the, he's like a 280 pound offensive yeah. lineman. He can do the full splits. It's the most amazing thing in the world. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah there's another guy, there's another offensive lineman. that's like weighs like 300 pounds, but he looks like he weighs like 190. It's wild. I don't know who you're talking about, but I, I know there's, that's probably exists or they're just all muscle. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, like the, these athletes are just different, man. It's crazy. That's the other, well, we were talking about that earlier. That's another thing that's changed is like the amount of care you have to put to your body in the, in the 21st century athlete is kind of crazy. Um, was, oh yeah. So back to that, like I saw three guys taken there. They're talking about like five Georgia defensive players going in the first round. I'm like, Ooh, that might've been the greatest defense in the history of college football. And they're, and they're all getting studs too. Like, yeah, I can tell you two guys right now, Nicobe Dean and, Jordan Davis, they're both going to be studs. Dude, Trayvon Walker is going to be the number one pick in the draft, and I just had no idea who he was. I was like, wait, so the best of them all is a guy who I don't even know is is the best of all of them. Yeah, I heard of him, but I never like... Like, it wasn't like, you know what I mean? It wasn't like the sexy names, you know? It's just because, dude, Jordan Davis is like... 300 something pounds and runs like a four seven. It's like, what the hell? This yeah, dude, these guys are insane. 
they're it's crazy and like i know you can do that with like most of these guys because they're like the most elite of elite athletes it's why i think we all are underappreciating lamar jackson because he's like more elite than the most elite athletes in the world and at the same time like we can do this with anyone but the fact that they were all together on that georgia defense and allowed fucking car dealer stetson bennett to win the national championship is insane and all of them are going to the draft. Not even all of them declared for the draft. Like there's still guys in Georgia on that defense. It's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah no. And, and I, 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 I was telling my buddy this like literally like 20 minutes ago. I'm like, I want the Patriots to get somebody from the Georgia defense. I don't care who it is. I just want one of them because they were all freaking unbelievable. <laughs> I want you want the Dan Snyder draft strategy, which is I want big names and kids from Alabama. <laughs> that's that's honestly, been Dan Snyder's strategy for 20 years. <laughs> honestly, it's not the worst strategy because these guys are all freaking monsters. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's it hasn't worked out great for Dan Snyder, but still, it's the Washington has what what did Washington end up on here? Washington was twenty second on this this list of oh, drafting, wow. so it's not the greatest strategy in the world. But it it is basically the idea of like just give us something to be excited about. And when, yeah. when you take like Andrew Booth, the corner from Clemson, or the offensive lineman from Northern Iowa, it's harder to get excited. Even if it's the right pick, it's just harder to get excited. So you yeah, know. the Patriots drafted. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, uh, his name's escaping me, but it was the safety um, from like a D two school. Oh, uh, um, I, Duggar. I, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Um, I'm surprised he, I remember that. Was, that was from like two years ago. That was a snipe. I can't even believe you said that. But he was he's really good. Like he's like kind of a stud actually. And but it's like at the time we were like who <laughs> like, like, what you know what i mean like this like this dude are you kidding me it's so interesting because you're you probably watch the draft from like a patriot centric standpoint which is yeah. more interesting because you it's only one pick and it's one pick that you won't know if it works for the longest time and yet like people who are team centric i'm always so fascinated by how much they love the draft yeah, yeah. I, I, so it, it's honestly funny because I look for a team centric perspective, but I also look at it from like because I'm a content creator too. So like I, I try to like, you know, because like I, I, I really like, I really like the the drafts that like, basically what the only reason I'm watching it is for the people that are supposed to be really high, and then they just like fall. They don't like mm-hmm. get drafted when they when they should. Like basically, Mac Jones actually was one. What was a really that was. That was like, like yeah. kind of, kind of like that too. Sure. Um, okay. We still, I'm still adamant about Mac Jones not being good, but that's okay. Yes, you are correct. He's, he's, he did fall. He's, he's still a top 15 quarterback. You're like, yeah, I, I, I know you don't like him, but he is gonna be good. He's fine. I, he's it's fine. not that I, it's not that I don't like him. I don't like the people who are aggressively defending him. I don't like yeah. the Mac Jones fans. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, well, the Patriots fans love him. They, they, they freaking love this guy. Yeah, I know, I know, but they would they they wouldn't have loved him as much as they loved Justin Fields, though. Well, I mean, Justin Fields. Uh, well, let, let's see. The, the the Mac Jones was the best rookie quarterback last year, and I, yes. and I know that that's like, and I know I understand like all of them are on crap bag teams. I I totally get that, but with that being said, there's only one of those guys that I would trade Mac Jones for right now. It would be Trevor Lawrence. And there's a lot of people that don't feel that way about Trevor Lawrence, which I just think you're just, you're on crack. 
Yeah, the same with Trevor Lawrence was on the worst situation ever last year. The Trevor Lawrence one is so difficult to figure out, but there are two different things here. It's all about framing, right? I'm not saying one's more right than the other, but the framing is yeah. Mac Jones was the best rookie QB last year, as opposed to the alternative, which was Mac Jones was barely a good QB last year. Like well, all the yeah, other rookies rookie, were were bad. Yeah, and, usually rookie quarterbacks are not good though. Like so, like in general, so like like in a rookie standpoint, he was like had one of the best rookie seasons ever. And I'm not, but I'm not saying that he's like an elite. I really am not. I just think, oh, yeah. I just think he like the best rookie quarterback I've ever seen play probably was like RG three and like Dak Prescott. Like uh, and then like. Uh. Both of those were just so great. Oh. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. Those those are great years. You know, like those two guys just like rough out my head. But like, usually rookie quarterbacks suck. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If you're looking for another great book, RG 3s writing a book that comes out in August about surviving Washington. I'm sure it's going to be great. I'm definitely yeah. going to get that. It seems like he seems like he's going to tell stories. So he's gonna he's gonna give out some of the dirty secrets. It feels like so. Well, yeah. I, well, it doesn't doesn't really matter. You should just air them all up because. Because Washington is about to get completely boned soon. Yeah. And I, the thing that's interesting about it from like the page, like Mac Jones was an average NFL QB last year. Yeah, definitely. That's, and you, you didn't think he could, you, at the start of the year, you, we were talking about how you weren't sold that he could even be that. And no, so seeing no. that was a, a, a plus. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And I, that's I, probably where it I is. think, I think in general, um, Mac Jones has already exceeded my expectations, like a hundred percent. I, I like, I mean, obviously he wasn't like, you know, you know, whatever, but I just, I just think at the end of the day, if Mac Jones becomes like, I don't know, like just throwing it out there, like Kirk cousins, that's a freaking absolute grand slam. And, and, and like, that would be like, a really good draft pick. And I think that yeah. if Kirk Cousins was on a right team, like if you say if he's on like a, a good coach team, he'd be like a top five quarterback. Well, top 10, you, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like a, re- a much better. If he was yeah. On yeah. Team. Kirk Cousins. The joke I have about him is he's the Nikola Vukovic of the NFL, yeah. <laughs> which is that like Vukovic literally was on Orlando and got traded to Chicago and Orlando and Chicago just literally traded places. Like the man is good for five games bounced in the first round. That's what Kirk cousins is. He will get you seven wins. Can't get you more than 10, but he'll get you seven. So that's, yeah. that's just kind of like, sometimes it's good enough to make the playoffs. Sometimes it's not, you know what it, two different teams he's done it on now. Uh, Kirk Cousins has been in the league now like seven years as a starter, and he has never lost fewer than seven. I think he might have gone six and ten one year, but never gone fewer than seven wins, never had more than ten wins. That's the that is exactly where he sits, is like an average NFL quarterback. Yeah. Yeah. And if Mac Jones is that, that's a huge win for the Patriots, especially because some of those guys drafted above statistically are gonna have to be busts. Like there, there are not five starting caliber quarterbacks in the NFL in every draft class. Cause there's only 32. I mean, there's only 16 great quarterbacks, but there's only 32 openings. So statistically they can't all be great. And yeah. if Mac Jones is good enough to be like the starter for seven years, that's a huge win for the Patriots. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, again, they'll figure that out with time, but, um, I do have one more NBA topic I'd like to broach you with. We, I right. mentioned it a little bit earlier. So 
the Luca stuff. Um, first of all, again, we haven't seen whether there's a game seven in that series or not yet, but if I'm placing a bet, I'm going to say Dallas wins that series. They win it in Utah and Utah just it's dismantles everything. But um, the first question I have for you before we do Luca talk is if I threw this trade at you this off season, just a straight up swap, do you think you would do it? You can be uh, you're let's say you're the Utah jazz in this scenario. Um, you can straight up swap Rudy Gobert for DeAndre Ayton. Um, oh, man. Uh, I mean, in theory, yes, but I, I don't know. Is that con- What's that contract going to look like? Um, for, uh, Ayton's rookie deal ends, so let's say it's a max. Let's say he's making the same amount of money as, as Rudy Gobert. Oh, God. Actually, I think Gobert uh, got like forty million a year, so I guess it would be like you save six million dollars, basically. I mean, yeah, I guess, like, yeah, let's just say, yeah. Okay, that's it's interesting because I I feel like that's just such a perfect swap for both. Teams well, the reason at this why point. is because like everyone forget because like Rudy Gobert is like still good. Like I know he's like it's Rudy, but he's still a really good player. I just don't know what he could get on the open market for him. Cause I'm not even sure you really want a big man, but the answer is yes. I, I would, I would do it. Yeah. He, he just changes team defense in such a unique way, but anyway, yeah. I just wanted to see what you think about that. Cause Utah at this point, they're pretty much like, we can't they lose these guys something. for nothing. So how can we, how can we yeah, stay they gotta, competitive? They got to pick and, or uh, because, cause you know that uh, uh, Donovan Mitchell's gone if they don't make a move. Like it's just that that is just like that he's just a a lame duck like he's gone he's gone. I I think it depends what Donovan Mitchell wants, right? Like I could understand Don, Donovan Mitchell. There's a ton of reports that he wants to leave apparently, but like I mean that's just reports, and I don't know. Yeah, but he, we we've known for years he hates Rudy Gobert. <laughs> like uh, yeah. that was an amazing stat they showed. So do you know how many passes in this um, yeah, series this. Donovan Mitchell's made Go to Rudy Gobert? I, I don't know the number, but I did see it was like it, it was it, wait oh this series I don't know about this series I'm not sure about that this series it is a total of eleven passes he has total total it's like two a oh, game wow. in the series <laughs> he he throws Rudy Gobert two passes a game not lobs two passes a game that's wild. Yeah, he's just like you're bleeping terrible as <laughs> you're just a terrible offensive basketball player. But just oh god, the the Chris Paul to Rudy Gobert lobs would be so good, be so yeah. good. Oh yeah, and, and yeah, because because uh, yeah, you, you know, I I actually probably would do that. I I definitely would do that actually. Now, now just, that you're talking about it, I heard it. It just seems so perfect. Now my pipe dream one, and you can tell me how you feel about this. My pipe dream is Jokic who is one year away from free agency traded to the Suns for Aiton, Cam Johnson and five first round picks. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, I just want to yeah, see that it. team so bad. I just want to see Jokic and Chris Paul and Devin Booker so bad on the same team. I just, I just don't think it's going to happen for, well, 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 for obviously several reasons, but yeah. um, Jokic already said he's going to sign the Supermax and they have to trade him. So yeah, he's yeah. not going to leave. I know he just can if he wants to. <laughs> it's yeah. The Nuggets, the Nuggets are going to be championship contenders next year as long as they like get both well, their and, guys and, healthy and yeah, make, exactly, exactly. Make one move, like go get Gallinari from the Hawks. Just make one move. Additionally to that, you'll be fine. Yeah, 
I mean, they, they, I mean, Aaron Gordon was supposed to be that, that. What the hell happened to that guy? Aaron Gordon. Um, I mean, he was kind of like the, it was basically like they just recreated the, the Orlando magic with Jokic as the center point. And apparently that's good enough to make the playoffs. If Will Barton is your second best player. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. The, the Luca thing that I find interesting is like, he he also came back in game four, just kind of like Ben Simmons did. And uh, or we thought Ben Simmons was going to before Ben Simmons decided I'm good <laughs> during game four. Um, what, I found it interesting that Luca came back and like I assumed if he was being held out of games that the injury was really bad. And he, he put up like 30 and 10 in the first game back and put up a 33 point triple double in the second game. I'm like, Jesus Christ, this dude is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. He like in the, in the eyes of like what he's doing in the playoffs, like he could be the best player in the NBA. <laughs> like, just like, I, I'm not, I'm not saying he is, but like when he's playing like this, he really is different. It's wild. Yeah. So I I've now, I said, I, I, last time we were here, I said I had Luca stuff and I saved it for another podcast, but basically the idea is like Luca last year, was 22, which was the same age LeBron made that weird finals run in 07, and the same age mm. KD went to the finals in 2012 with the Thunder. Mm. And the Mavericks have not put enough around Luka to do that. I mean, LeBron James single-handedly carried the... Like, what was his name? Ilzowskis was like the second best player yeah. on the Cavs that year. Yeah. But like... The fact that they got to the conference finals was like an expectation, and then they just happened to upset the Pistons. Well, the East, like, the East was also kind of weaker, like much weaker. Yeah, and then the KD one was 2012, where um, they played the Spurs in the conference finals. It was like this massive upset that OKC beat. The Spurs were like huge favorites going into that series, and yeah. OKC beat them. So it was like at the very least they got to the conference finals and could maybe pull an upset. We should have had that last year with Luca had Luca stayed healthy. It oh yeah. Should have been, yeah, they were going to beat the Clippers. Yeah. I mean, it went seven games anyways. And then he had the neck back and shoulder injury and just played shit in game seven. Cause he couldn't lift his arm. And I love Luca. And then they would have beat Dallas last year. Cause if fucking Terrence Mann can beat Dallas, <laughs> yeah, I know. if Terrence Mann uh, can beat uh, Utah. Utah. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, a thousand percent. Actually, if Terrence Mann can beat Utah, I mean, they're doing it right now. Like Jalen Brunson is the leading scorer in he, the playoffs, but, J- but Jalen Brunson is a bucket though. He's going to get paid. I know. I'm just like, I've seen you before though. Like last year you were Tim Hardaway. I've seen he's you gonna, before. He's going to get, he's going to get freaking paid in the offseason. He's one of those guys that makes all that like, is like on a contract year. And then he just like goes in free agency and just makes a ton of money. He's going to get he's paid a, by like, like, like whatever bad team is going to pay him like, like 20 million a year or something. Yeah. So, so literally last year when Tim Hardaway was doing, because it's basically just a volume scorer, right? The, the thing is like yeah. the Mavericks just need a second volume scorer along with Luca. Cause Luca takes up so much of the offense and like with good reason, like they just need yeah, a volume yeah, yeah. scorer. So last year when it was Tim Hardaway and he was averaging like 22 points a game in the playoffs, I was like, man, someone's going to pay you a hundred million dollars and it's probably going to be the Pacers. 
And <laughs> yeah, legit. The Pacers are a good one. Yeah. And, and then the Mavericks gave him like $76 million and he got hurt. And he's not playing this year. So now it's Brunson. And I'm like, someone's going to give you a hundred million dollars. And it's probably going to be the Pistons. Yeah. It's probably gonna be the Mavericks again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but that's the thing, Dallas, you can find, you have a better chance of finding another Jalen Brunson and Tim Hardaway. Definitely. Than you do of sure. finding another like Chris Stapps or another Bradley Beal. Like what they what Luca needs is a second star, and they can't yeah. find that, so they're just giving him volume scorers. Like even Josh Green is probably good enough to be that. Like he's probably the next guy on the lot on the list after Brunson leaves because it's like yeah, it's it's just a volume scorer basically is all they need around Luca, and and they've got a mm-hmm. bunch of them down the bench. Yeah, you know, like uh, a guy like um, if you ask me what I would do um, is go for like Bradley Beal, someone like that. Um, I know Bradley Beal. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if like like how like how realistic that is, but like someone like that, like he is a star. You need a star. Like get, imagine getting like even though I know it's a little redundant, but like getting like um, Donovan Mitchell, mm-hmm. something like that. That, that would be redundant, but you know, because well, you, you, you Donovan like Mitchell, Donovan Mitchell's the king of the volume scorers, right? He's, he's basically his generation's Carmelo Anthony. Yeah. Damn. I, I, I like him too. I don't know. Uh, I, oh, I, I have I a mean, very, I have a very interesting perspective on him on Donovan Mitchell. Yeah. I, I like him, but I also think that like, he's just, he, he's like this, he's like kind of this year's version, this, this time's version um, of, of uh, Devin Booker, not exactly, but similar. Cause it's like, it just feels like he's just not, he doesn't really impact the game in the way, um, you know, like Tatum. Like, I remember, I remember early on, they were like comparing him and Tatum. It's like, they're just so different. Okay. I think him and Devin Booker are the same age. It's kind of great. Yeah. They yeah. are the same age. That's interesting. I I because well, Donovan Mitchell for fifteen years. <laughs> I'll, I found it so weird that this is Donovan Mitchell's fifth year in the league. Because like I in the that back of wild. my closet there, one of the few jackets I have is the rookie jacket that he wore to um that he wore to to make fun of Ben Simmons for being rookie of the year because he was oh, a second yeah. year player. Wow. I literally bought that jacket back in like twenty nineteen, and I'm like fuck, this is like his fifth year in the league now. Like Donovan Mitchell is kind of headed towards like, he he's kind of like where Mello was in 2009 or like where, um, like where Westbrook was in 2016, where I'm like, damn, this might be the, like the best version of Donovan Mitchell at this point. And that's so I weird. How, I just don't know how we can get better. Like, I'm not sure. I mean, let's see what like, his numbers look like. Cause I know he, like I know much, he takes a lot of shots. Like that's kind of his thing is he's a volume shooter. I mean, he only shoots 35% from three, which again, he's a volume shooter. So like, it's not the end of the world that he shoots 35% from three, but like last year he shot 39% from three and they were the one seed in the bubble. He shot like 38% from three. So I guess like, maybe I'm just, I just don't, I just don't trust them at all. So maybe I'm just being disrespectful. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I know people are have just because Donovan Mitchell's the same person he was in the Jazz of the same team they've been for like five years, even six years, because like they replaced Gordon Hayward with Donovan Mitchell like year to year and just did the same thing. So like, which is maybe yeah, it's similar too. 
I mean, yeah, they are. I mean, Gordon Hayward, Gordon Hayward impacts winning more than we gave him credit for. Like they, they showed the, the, the splits between um, his Boston and Charlotte days when he was on the floor, when he was off the floor, you actually kind of an impactful player, which no, again, it's is. like, yeah, it shouldn't be shocking. Like he made an all-star team once upon a time. It's just like, and he was, and he was awesome when he mm-hmm. was in the jazz and the jazz with him. I think, who did they beat? They beat someone in the first round. So um, someone good too. Yeah, I, I, maybe it was the Rockets. I don't know. They. Yeah, I'm. I'm, ha- I'm having trouble remembering it too. But I know. Um, I know Donovan Mitchell beat the Clippers in the first round. I remember that one. I th- yeah. It was, was it the Clippers? I think it was the Clippers. Um, yeah, I think so too. Someone beat the Clippers in the first round. It was either Gordon yeah. Hayward or Donovan Mitchell. Someone beat the Clippers because yeah. the Clippers were like that was one of those possible conference final run year for the Clippers. Yeah. So yeah. Gordon Hayward beat the Clippers. Um. Then Donovan Mitchell. Oh, that's right. He beat OKC that first, um, that first oh, Paul yeah, George yeah. year. Yeah. I forgot yeah, about I that. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was making the joke the other day. It was like, okay, so first year they lose to, to Kevin Durant and Steph Curry. It's like, okay, that's respectable. I understand Utah losing to them. Then it's like mm-hmm. they lose to MVP James Harden. Okay, that's kind of understandable that you you overachieved, you lose to a really good team. Okay, cool. Then they yeah. lose to MVP James Harden again. It's like, okay, no shame. You, you, you know, he's still really good. You finished second in MVP that year. Then it's like, then you lose to Jamal Murray. I'm like, uh, okay, that's just, okay. You probably should have been able to beat Jamal Murray, but whatever. Okay. Yeah. Then you lose well, to Terrence Mann. That was also the bubble, right? Yeah, but that was that amazing series where like Jamal Murray had like two fifty point games. And yeah, Donovan but, and then Mitchell. yeah, Donovan Mitchell was going off too. Yeah, I forgot about. I that. think Donovan Mitchell still has like one of the four highest scoring games in the history of the playoffs. I think that's a real yeah. thing. Yeah, I'm actually. I'm, yeah, he was he was like laying down on the ground. Yeah, for sure. In playoff but anyways so it's like okay you lose to jamal murray okay that's a bit disappointing it was also like remember mike conley shot the buzzer beater in game six and it was like weird um but anyways so they do that and then yeah donovan mitchell has the third highest scoring playoff game in the history of the nba (laughs) yeah it's really 57 points is the third most points in a playoff game in nba history wild yeah, call it modern NBA. He did it in 43 minutes too, which is kind of weird. Um, Damian Lillard also had that amazing game last year that no one talks about where he scored like the last 24 points and went to double overtime against Denver. Um, yeah. Anyways, so like they, they like lose to Steph Curry, lose to James Harden, lose to James Harden, lose to Jamal Murray, lose to Terrence Mann, lose to Jalen Brunson. At a certain point, we're going to look up and be like, bro, don't lose to Jalen Brunson and Terrence Mann. <laughs> like, come on, don't. <laughs> oh, hold on, hold on. I have something wicked funny that I just saw on Twitter. Hold on. What did you second. see? Hold on. It, it, it's, it's, just, it's just a funny. Oh, that's hilarious. So I just saw on Twitter someone saying, Type in on Google who's the who's the Utah Jazz owner. Do, do it really quick. Real quick, let's see. Uh, it's it's very funny. Utah Jazz owner. <laughs> 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 it comes up as Jalen Brunson. Oh, <laughs> shout awesome? out to whoever was able to do that. <laughs> How do you even do that? <laughs> I think you change it on Wikipedia. Possibly, I don't know. Um, that's so good. Utah, God, that's so funny. 
it's how I don't, I don't even know how that. people do that. I don't know how no. people do that. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I'm so happy that I just saw that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, like, I can't believe it's actually real because I always assume those were always photoshopped. I well, always assume people... this one's actually on Google. So yeah, that's that's so great. That I'm actually is so, so happy that I just saw that to like like while we're on the while we're on here because I was just doing something for videos and I just saw that and I was like oh my god he's gonna <laughs> love that that's so good I, come on bro like Terrence Mann and Jalen Brunson cannot be beating you it actually just added it, it it added to our like what we were just talking about like that was yeah. perfect it's so that, great <laughs> I, that was that was perfect that was so perfect. <laughs> Oh, oh god the, pist- the pistons are gonna pay him so much money pistons yeah, are gonna pay pistons tried to do it with van fleet last year they tried <laughs> they tried to give van fleet all that money how about sacramento sacramento's already got like 20 point guards might as well might as well just sign jalen brunson at this point i'm cool yeah, with it. that that is funny dude wow uh, Dallas, um, Dallas. I mean, Devin Booker might be healthy, but if you told me Dallas could beat Phoenix without Devin Booker, I'd believe you. Even with Devin Booker, I think they have a chance to beat him. Wow, I'm so pumped about that. But yeah, um, so is there anything else you want to ch- uh, touch on? Because I, I got to get going soon. Uh, let's see. Did we miss anything? We got Sixers, Bucks, Celtics, Heat, uh, Warriors, Grizzlies. Yeah, I think we got pretty much everyone in basketball world, and cool. we and we somehow never got to Kevin Durant. Well, we touched on him two seconds in for like a second, and then we just yeah we we, we mentioned the fact that we always talk about Kevin Durant's yeah, psychology. Yeah. It was more but more Kyrie really and Ben Simmons yeah. this time. Yeah, fair, fair. Cool, um, man. Sounds good. All righty, see you later, Cam. A lot I of fun, dude. It, man. Th- th- thanks for having me. We'll talk soon. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit